Hello and welcome to episode 111 of the podcast. On today's episode, we are talking with the amazing Dr. Jen Bossio, who is a clinical psychologist, teacher, and academic, and who focuses on women's and men's sexual health. Today, Dr. Bossio is going to be giving us the lowdown on low sexual desire in women. Honestly, it was such a fascinating conversation, and I think we could have gone on for at least another hour, if not more. Enjoy the episode, and as always, reach out if you have any comments or questions. And if you're liking what you're hearing, let us know too. Welcome to Vino and Vaginas, the podcast. I'm your host, Cassie Dion, and I'm here to bring you interviews from the absolute best and brightest in their field, all about issues related to being a woman, from health and fitness to sex and dating and everything in between. My mission at Vino and Vaginas is to explore these topics, health, sexuality, and everything related to being a woman in a fun and safe environment free of shame, embarrassment, or stigma. It's going to be an amazing time. Now, let's get to it. Well, first off, Dr. Bossio, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. I know you and absolutely everyone in your field is just have been working their butts off in the last year and before that too. So it means a lot that you took the time to kind of join us today. Yeah, I'm delighted to be here. Awesome. And I do think, so we're talking today about low sexual desire in women. And I think this is a really important topic. And it's one that as a pelvic health physio, I see women talk about all the time with me and they're often embarrassed about it or don't really want to talk about it even with me. But I think in the general population at large, like we really don't talk about it. So it's nice that we can, you know, have this discussion in this safe space. Agreed. Yes. And as I'm sure we'll talk about, it is a very pervasive issue and one that gets very little attention. I feel like everything in women's health gets very little attention. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're right, Cassie. I think you're right. <laughs> That's okay. That's why we're here with, why we're on the podcast. Yeah. But before we kind of narrow in and laser focus on low sexual desire, can you just tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah. Um, so I am a clinical psychologist. I have a practice here in Kingston that focuses on sexual health specifically, although because of virtual care, we're actually servicing all of Ontario at this time. Um, I'm an adjunct faculty through Queens in the Department of Medicine and the Department of Psychology. Uh, And I also work one day a week at the chronic pain clinic here at Hotel Dew Hospital, primarily working with uh, genital and pelvic pain with men and women. So that keeps you very busy. (laughs) Yes. Yes, it does. (laughs) Happily so. (laughs) And it's been some time that you've worked in this sexual health field. Can you tell us a bit about how you became interested in it and maybe what your treatment philosophies might be? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, it really dates back to when I was in undergrad. I did my undergrad at McMaster. And while I was getting ready to apply for clinical psychology, I was working in, um, a lab that did a lot of work in evolutionary psychology. Um, So at that time, as I'm thinking about, okay, what do I want to research in grad school? I knew that I wanted my research to be very practical, something that I would joke if I talked about it in a party, you know, people would actually understand as opposed to very esoteric, like mice models or whatnot. (laughs) Um, And so one of the driving forces behind evolution in, you know, humans and all things is sex. Um, So I was doing a lot of work around attractiveness and mate selection. 
And from there, I really saw this clear connection between that and sexual health and realizing, you know, once that door was opened, it became very clear sex is we're all evidence that sex happens. It's going on all the time. And when sex is going well, it's great. But when sex is not going well, it has a profound impact on people's overall lives, right? Their general mental health, their relationship well-being, even their physical health. It's better when sex is going well and it's worse mm -hmm. when sex is not. And so it, you know, once I locked my eyes on that, I kind of, I just found that it was such a profound area to to work in and a really a place to help people live happier, healthier lives. Absolutely. And a, and a place that a lot of people might not feel they have support. Not at all. Not at all. Yes. So really gives you a lot of opportunity to help people in so many ways. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's very stigmatized. It so is. Do you have any general philosophies that you kind of, in terms of your treatment methods, are there any philosophies that you subscribe to? Yeah, there are. So I, I believe very heavily in the biopsychosocial model, which is just a kind of obnoxious way of saying that I think when it comes to having a happy, healthy sex life, we need to have happy minds or excuse me, healthy minds, healthy bodies and healthy relationships. So I believe that so much that's where the name of my clinic, the Tri Health Clinic came from, Tri for these three major pillars in a good sex life. And on top of that, really, we focus very heavily on what the science shows us works. So it's not just stuff that we think sounds cool. Mm -hmm. um, it's the stuff that there is good evidence for. And fortunately, in this day and age, particularly living in Canada, there is a great deal of very high quality research coming out around sexual health and the treatments for those. And so that's really the foundation for all of the work that I do with my clients and, and research when I'm involved in that too. I love that. That's what we try to do in physio as well and focus on the whole person whole and person. all of those three components. And of course, making right. sure we're doing things that actually have proof and evidence that it is effective and not just throwing everything, but the kitchen sink at it. Exactly. It <laughs> saves everyone time and a lot of frustration as well. Yes, of course. All right. So let's jump right in then to talking about low sexual desire in women. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us just what is low sexual desire? What how do we know if it's low sexual desire? Right. So when we're talking about sexual desire, we're really talking about um, like a motivational state, right? And so desire is that wanting, that willingness to engage in sexual activity or sexual fantasy, whatnot. This is different from sexual arousal, although the two often get sort of conflated. Yes. Whereas sexual arousal is more of a physiological or a mental experience of being turned on. So arousal might refer to either, you know, blood flow to the genitals or sort of that mental excitement that comes along. And it can be both and it can be one or the other. Um, whereas desire is more the motivation to engage. Okay. So would you say then that, uh, uh, sorry, desire is more of an emotional state or a cognitive I process? I think it's a, it's a combination of these things. So motivations and emotions are often sort of linked. Um, so the short answer is they are related. Yes. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's very mental, but some people do report very physiological feelings of desire, like an urge or a wanting similar to hunger. 
right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's very much in our body, but it's also in our mind. So it's sort of a combination of those things. Okay. Is there any way to objectively measure desire then, or is it subjective for each person? In terms of the research, desire (laughs) tends to be measured subjectively, right? And so there isn't just a little thing that we can plug into people and we have a monitor that says you are seven out of 10 uh, experiencing sexual desire. Um, It tends to be quite subjective. Versus your arousal, which is quite objective. Part of arousal is quite objective, absolutely. So what's happening in our genitals, um, but there's actually a subjective element to arousal as well, where it's also, you know, how, how mentally aroused mm-hmm. are you? So this is one of the fun <laughs> things that makes sex both interesting, but also challenging to study. <laughs> yeah, some, some aspects are hard to tease apart, whereas others are more obvious, right? Yes, yeah. Okay, and so now does one, does desire cause arousal? Is it arousal that causes desire? Can both directions happen? I think what you're asking is such an important question and one that sex research is really looking into right now. And so, <clears throat> The way that I usually teach sexual uh, response is by looking at all of these different elements that happen that go into a full kind of sexual response. And so what we tend to see is, well, we often have a belief that sexual desire, bam, it just comes out of nowhere, right? You're walking down the street and all of a sudden, I need to have sex. Right? Yes. The motivation is there. <laughs> you see that in the movies, right? <laughs> oh, all the movies show that, right? Two people lock eyes across the room and suddenly, bam, they're going they at it. They jump each other. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And so we call this spontaneous sexual desire. Okay. Um, but what the research is starting to show us, and actually more and more of the leaders in the sex research field are starting to believe sexual desire might never actually be spontaneous. There might be a lot of other things that go into it before that desire or that motivational state kicks in. We don't have enough evidence to totally discredit it and get rid of it. So we still talk about it. We still teach it. Um, But what tends to happen and what we believe is more likely an explanation for desire is that it's triggered. And so things like our reasons for engaging in sex, right? We have these more healthy approach reasons to engage. I want to connect with my partner. I want to stress relief. I've heard I want some exercise, right? Like you name it, that whatever yeah. it is, if it's sort of a healthy reason to engage in sex, we also need to make sure that the context is good and that there are cues in order to increase our sexual response. From there, we also need our kind of mind and body in alignment here. And I'm sure we'll kind of get to the, how our mind and body can really kind of mess up that process. But assuming all of those things are kind of check marks along the way, then we tend to see sexual arousal, mental or physical or both. And this is what triggers that desire or that wanting. So for some people, this all happens so quickly. All they notice is the desire, Mm -hmm. right? It's, It's very, very quick. For some people, particularly women, it often actually takes, you know, engaging in sexual activity and, and getting that sexual arousal up before the desire even kicks in. So you can see how this might become really problematic if we have this expectation that, well, if I really love my partner, I should just want to have sex with them all the time, right? The kids are asleep. Now's a good time. I should want it. But in fact, there's all of these other elements that need to happen before that desire kicks in. And we give so little attention to that, that oftentimes we're sitting around, we're waiting to get turned on and it never happens. 
Yeah, that, that reminds, it's really interesting. And it really reminds me when we're talking about motivation in general, say it's to, I don't know, do 20 squats a day or just some sort of fitness. You hear it all the time that I just don't have the motivation to, to exercise, but so many people, if they just start, they actually create that motivation. So action breeds motivation versus just yeah. motivation breeding action. Right. And I think Absolutely. a lot of times people don't realize that it can go both ways. And so starting the process, whatever that process is, can help create that motivation or in this scenario, the desire. Absolutely. I mean, and let's be honest, life would be a lot easier if you just wanted to work out all of the time and like do the squats. (laughs) And the reality is exactly what you said. It actually takes that really difficult engaging at times before that kind of motivation kicks in. It can be very interesting. And I'm somewhat, I mean, I'm in this field a little bit, not like you, but I'm somewhat surprised by your answer. Cause I think, I think everyone thinks it's the opposite desire will lead to arousal in more instances than the opposite when it yeah. seems to be the, you know, the flip of that. Yeah. And that, again, this is where a lot of people kind of run into problems, rightfully so, because the messages that we receive out there are that you should be aroused, you should be mm-hmm. totally turned on and then ready to engage. Right. Or, you know, you should really, excuse me, I kind of missed that, mixed that up, right? You should be really, (laughs) you should be really motivated. You should be really wanting it. That kind of mental motivation should be there first. And instead it tends to be the opposite of what I said first there. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, Yeah, it's so fascinating. But anyway, it's it's great that we're having this message and and sharing it because people need to know that, you know, if they don't have, if they don't want sex all the time, that's okay. There's, there's other opportunities to create that desire. Exactly. And then speaking about this too, there's a lot of really interesting research out there that talks about a low concordance between physical arousal and desire. So in other words, women may become aroused when they don't actually feel desire. And that obviously kind of muddies the water in what we're talking a little bit about that, as you would expect those processes to occur at the same time. So what, what does that really mean? Can you share with our listeners what that means? And does this affect the desire or the low desire for women in any way? Mm -hmm. Yes. So the research looking at sexual concordance, what it measures is actually these two different elements of sexual arousal. So the physiological arousal and the mental arousal. So you get people into the lab, you sort of, you sort of show them different stimuli, sexual stimuli or cues that can elicit, bring up a sexual response. And what we tend to see is that the brain and body are not always connected. And so through, there's been a great deal of research on this. And so a meta-analysis, which is basically a summary of a whole bunch of different studies has shown that when it comes to the brain-body connection in men, and I'm going to go into math for like just a second, so bear with me. But when I'm talking about correlations, I love math, so I'm okay with it. <laughs> perfect. So get ready. So when I'm talking about correlations here uh, between two different things, correlation of zero, two things are exactly not related. Correlation of one, they're very, they're perfectly related. So with men, the brain-body connection uh, with sexual arousal is about 0.6, which is moderate. It's not even that great. Like that's a moderate correlation to us. Um, women is actually quite a bit lower than that. It's about 0.2. Massive difference. Which is very, very low correlation. And so what that tells us is basically that what the, you know, what's going on in the brain and what's going on in the body are not always aligned. And in order for a sexual response to really move through and be, you know, quote unquote successful, um, what we need is the brain body connection to be much 
closer together. Mm -hmm. So desire is a little bit different in that it is that motivational element, but you can imagine, you know, if your brain and your body aren't speaking to each other or aren't totally aligned with respect to sexual arousal, is desire even going to kick in? Right. So common example being for women, they may not really, you know, mentally, they may not have any sexual arousal happening. Physiologically, they might have some sexual arousal in the form of, let's say, vaginal lubrication, but they don't have that kind of mental feedback. And so there isn't really anything pushing them towards that motivation or that desire to engage. Men, a little bit different because they have a bit more kind of um, feedback for their physiological arousal, right? It, you know, right. erections, they could be quite aware that it's happening. They can feel it a bit more clearly. And so that might kind of drive the motivation to engage. Oh, look, I'm aroused. I must want to engage in sex. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, it's not so as obvious for women. It is not as obvious for women. And whether that's a cause or a symptom of this low concordance, we don't really know. Um, but it just really, it just goes to show how complex sexual arousal is. It's not just an on off switch. And a lot of us expect it to be and feel like there's Mm -hmm. something wrong with us when it isn't so straightforward. When in fact, no, your body, your brain, they're just doing what they're working the way they're designed to work. Absolutely. And I find, so in my field and physio, a lot of the times I'm having a conversation with people about, you know, everything that can affect whatever they're experiencing, whether it's chronic pain or, or whatever reason they're coming to see me. And a lot of times we talk about the fact that there's so many factors that can relate to what we're dealing with that a lot of times we might not know the quote unquote cause or reason that something happened, but we have to look at your body as a whole and that biopsychosocial approach and realize that all of these factors matter. And a lot of times people find a lot of comfort in that because they might not be able to control every aspect, but they can control some of it. And over time that gets better and better. And it sounds very similar to what you're talking about when it comes to arousal here and desire. Yeah. I really feel that knowledge is such a powerful tool, especially when it comes to sex, because we don't get taught sexual concordance in elementary school sex ed, right? And so when we understand these processes and what's actually going on, we understand that it is complicated. If nothing else, it's just validating, right? Like, oh, oh it's not just me. And you're, to your point, okay, maybe I'm never going to have every single answer, but recognizing that it is complicated and of the stuff that we can identify going on, there's going to be stuff in there that you can have some sort of control over. Right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So how, like, is there any actual criteria or diagnostic criteria to diagnose low sexual desire? Yes. So low sexual desire, there's actually recently been in a, been a change from the DSM or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual 4 to 5. So this is our sort of Bible for diagnoses, especially in mental health field. Um, And so what was previously known as hyposexual desire disorder in women has actually been changed to female sexual arousal slash interest desire, or excuse me, disorder, or what we call FSIAD. FSIAD, okay. Yes. And so basically there are six different criteria that go into a diagnosis of, you know, what we would consider low desire, low arousal. And you can see even in this, right, desire or interest. That's what I was just going to ask you. I wrote a note. Yeah. 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 So they are conflated even in that diagnosis. And because there's six criteria, you need three for at least six months for a diagnosis. You can really have kind of 
um, two different women with very different presentation who mm -hmm. both kind of fall underneath this, um, this diagnostic criteria. And it's also uh, actually a really important part of um, one of the diagnostic criteria is marked distress in the woman, right? And so this means that if let's say someone comes to see me, you know, let's say it's a woman who doesn't really have a lot of desire or interest in sex, but her partner's very distressed. She can take or leave it. She can never think about sex again. She's fine, but her partner is very distressed. She actually wouldn't meet the criteria for this quote unquote diagnosis. Would the treatment look different? It depends. And so there's certainly sort of pros and cons like anything putting people in a diagnostic box. There are pros and cons mm -hmm. with that. So and 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 that's that begs the question I was going to ask. How important is it really to have that actual diagnosis? Does it open doors for women? Does it lead to different treatment options, or is it just a, a not just a label, but is it more of a label in this in this instance? From from my perspective, certainly there is importance in having diagnostic criteria so that you know different professions across different areas of practice have similar language to talk about. From my perspective, it doesn't really matter. Um, the reason being is what we're looking at again is the whole person. Mm -hmm. The only place where a diagnosis would really matter is again, either um, you know, giving information to other healthcare providers, or perhaps sometimes if people have extended health coverage, they need a diagnosis in order to have their treatment covered. Right. Un unfortunately, as a psychologist, we're not covered by OHIP and it is only private care. I haven't had any instances where a diagnosis was needed in order to receive treatment. So the truth is I never diagnose anyone with something like FSIAD. Um, but of course I find it's more useful for something like research, right? Yes. We have a clear criteria. We know we're meeting them. So we know this treatment is helpful for this thing. That makes sense. But it's not like at four months coming to a family physician, they wouldn't get the referral to you until they had been experiencing these symptoms for six months, right? They could go right at, right at two months or whenever they, they wanted. Whenever, whenever. <laughs> <laughs> go yeah. on. I like to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> and then how common would you say it is? Mm. It is extraordinarily common. So I often think of, um, like, think of how many people, you know, who have diabetes, Mm -hmm. Like a lot more women have low sexual desire than people out there with diabetes. So what we see is about one in three women experience low or absent desire for sex. Um, not all of these women will experience distress, however, right? Okay. So what we see and of that, so we have about one in three who are experiencing low desire, about one in three women uh, excuse me, about half as many of those women. So about 15% of all women will experience issues with arousal. So again, kind of that, that split, but what we see is mm -hmm. much more women are dealing with low desire. Um, Do you think that number could be underrepresented because people who aren't experiencing distress would never fill out the forms that, <laughs> or, or, or seek, or we might just not know about them? That's that researcher mind, Cassie. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So these numbers, they do come from population-based sort of survey studies where it is pretty private. You're not looking at a person and kind of giving your, your information, but you're exactly right, right? If we are highly distressed, if we feel like there's something wrong, these are exactly the people who are not going to fill out these surveys and who are too, feeling too shamed 
to even kind of acknowledge it. So this is this is the best estimate we have and likelihood numbers are higher. Um, and those numbers do change over the course of the life as well, right? There are some periods in lives in our lives where we can expect desire to just drop right off. So example mm-hmm. being, for example, after childbirth, yeah. right? Desire is absent, doesn't mean that there's anything wrong per se, but we're gonna see a huge proportion of women who are in that kind of, you know, first, second child stage where desire is just absolutely gone. We wouldn't consider that a problem. It just makes sense, right? You're not sleeping, giant changes to your life. Body's gone through a whole bunch of things. So lower desire then. Yeah, but wow, one in three, that is quite a a high number of women. It is huge. It is a huge number. It is huge. I don't even know. I'll have to look up. Do you know what the number of people who have diabetes is? One in, is it 10? I don't know. I'm going to have to find that. (laughs) Yeah, I can't say off the top of my head, but I I can name a bunch of people in my lives who I care for deeply with diabetes. And I can only imagine that there are many more women out there with desire issues. Yeah, it's so fascinating. And that's why I think it's so important we chat about it because if one in three people are experiencing this, but they're afraid to talk to their girlfriends or their health professional or providers, right? This is, this is something that if they know that so many people are experiencing this, hopefully that they'll seek some, some help or, or chat about it a little bit more. Yeah. Even just recognizing that you can seek help, right? Like there are people to talk to There is information out there to kind of give a little bit more insight into it. Absolutely. Now in the research, women seem to consistently report lower sexual desire than men. So why, first of all, like, is there much of a difference between sexual desire when it comes to men and women? I know you already mentioned a little bit that men have that physical response a little bit more. So it's like they can know, but can you tell us a little bit more about the difference between men and women here? Yes. So, I mean, as a little bit of a background to my, particularly my research is really focused on men's sexual health. And I'm going to get on a soapbox for just one moment about Please sexual do. health. <laughs> okay. Um, So what we've really seen, like since the creation of Viagra, is that it's almost like the sex research in the beginning really focused on men's sexual health. Then we got that little blue pill. Guess what, men? All of your sexual problems appeared. You're done. (laughs) Take the pill. And, you know, sexual health has really started focusing in on women's health, which is fantastic. It has been woefully understudied you know, filled with stigma in the past, women are in very high need. So this is not a bad thing at all. This is great news. But what it means is that men have kind of been left in the dust when it comes to sexual difficulties. And there's a lot of sort of, you know, misinformation or again, stigma just sort of differently towards men. And so what we actually see from the numbers is that men's low desire, actually the rates map on pretty well to women's low desire. which is shocking, right? We kind of feel like, well, no, men are always ready to go, right? It's the women with the low desire, not the men. And what we see, and again, you know, maybe the the numbers in the surveys that we have might be impacted by people's willingness to complete whatnot, um, those surveys. But what we see time and again in these different questionnaires, population-based questionnaires, is that between eight up to 41 percent of men depending on what stage in the lifespan are reporting low sexual desire there is very little research on this though particularly with treatment so it can look a little bit different for men one of the fortunate things is that there there's often a bit more of a biological cause for it so um 
hypogonadism, for example, really low uh, testosterone, we're going to see that sexual desire kind of dropping off from that. And so there we can kind of fix that, get their T levels back up. Lo and behold, they're good to go. Whereas there is no pharmacological intervention for women. But I think it just once again really speaks to the fact that sex is complicated. This motivational ah. factor of desire is really complicated. And, and so is it really different? Arguably, there are kind of different factors going into men and women's sexual desire. Um, but at the end of the day, we all kind of suffer <laughs> in similar ways. It just comes out differently. And one would argue it's talked about even less for men because it's even more stigmatized, right? I can see that. Yeah. yeah. Like even when name. I was doing doing a bit of research, kind of all the like studies I was reading even was saying that there's a greater complexity in the response that women have versus men. And maybe that's not the truth. Or maybe we're finding that it is just as complex, but we're just not looking at these factors in men yet. You got it. You got it. And those kind of those much more nuanced studies looking at these different variables in men's sexual health at this time, they just don't really exist. Uh, oh, you could. Uh, are you going to start those studies there, Jen? <laughs> Stay tuned. Stay tuned. I know, right? That's fascinating. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So if we keep focusing a little bit on, I love talking about the men too, but our listeners are mostly women. So yeah. if back we to women. I know, mind you, I love your soapboxes. So please feel free to uh, tell us more, but what then causes low sexual desire for women? It sounds like there's a lot of them or different mm -hmm. reasons it could be, but what are common causes that of low desire? So, um, and again, you know, to your point, certainly the research on this does show us that it is complicated and it will be different for different women. We know very reliably one of the best killers of sexual desire for women is stress. And lo and behold, we live in a very stressful society, especially today more than ever, right? right. But particularly this long-term chronic ongoing stress of having the never ending to-do list of constantly being on the go, our mind is constantly wandering, we're just trying to get through our days. This is entirely, you know, unhelpful for a sexual response to kick up. So stress is a really big one. And we know that, you know, rates of stress and anxiety for women are extraordinarily high. Absolutely. And again, now more than ever with the COVID-19 yes. pandemic happening. So stress being a really big one, there certainly are some biological causes that can lead to low desire, um, as well as sort of mental health, you know, we tend to see most mental health diagnoses have the qualifier of impact on sexual functioning. So things like anxiety, like I mentioned, but depression are also going to have a really big impact. Sleep from a biological perspective is really important for sexual arousal. So getting back to the new moms who, what is sleep, right? Which right. is going to have a big impact. Um, there are a number of medications that could also impact sexual function uh, and, you know, arousal. So antidepressants being a really common one. Um, and then we get into, so I'm kind of going through the, the biological, the psychological, <laughs> the social. Um, relationship is also a really important factor in sexual desire. I'll just sort of interesting anecdote. I remember in grad school, I can't remember the exact paper, but I remember a bunch of us in the lab were reading one of these papers on low desire in women. And it kind of goes through, you know, when they were recruited and then they got their treatment and then afterwards they were testing them. And the number of women who completed the study were, was smaller 
than the number of women who started it. The reason being of these women who started the study with low sexual desire, a whole bunch of them broke up with their partner and found a different partner. And then they no longer met the criteria for oh. low desire. <laughs> And so part of that is relationship factors, right? Comfort, you know, having that cultivating a sense of desire within your relationship. But what we actually see is for these women with kind of these chronic lifelong low sexual desire, very reliably, the very beginning of a relationship, this tends to disappear and that desire yeah. kicks up. Yeah. So we've got the novelty factor. We have this new relationship, you know, everything's new and fresh and exciting bam, suddenly we no longer meet the criteria for this low desire. So relationship also has a big impact, not necessarily because, you know, oh, if you have low sexual desire, you're not in the right relationship, but because it's just not novel, fresh, new anymore. Yeah. Sex becomes a bit tiresome, a bit, you know, mundane, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so that desire will naturally start to peter off. That makes sense. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And I know there's a lot, so you talked about, biological, but also the individual factors like stress. And then of course these relationship factors. And at least in the research I was looking at, there seems to be people in either camps. They're like, oh, it's either mostly relationship or no, 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 it's mostly individual. And to me, it seems quite obvious that it would be a mix of the two. Is there a reason we have these diehard relationship people and these diehard individual people or? <laughs> it would just, it'd be so much easier if it was just one or the other. <laughs> Right. And especially research, it's, it's complicated to begin with. And if we could just narrow down our focus into one or the other world, the world would make so much more sense if things nicely fit into a box. And I think a lot True. of us are kind of inclined to look at it that way. Um, yes. So that that would be my thoughts on it. That makes sense. There's something. So whenever we're talking about joint, so I'm, I'm going to go on a little tangent here. But if I'm talking about a joint and how it moves and how stable it is, like, so say, take your your hip joint, for an example, I always say to people, our joints work on a continuum of either very mobile or very stable, and you can't have both, right? So the more mobile you are, the less stable it's going to be, and the more you have to work on maybe some strengthening exercises. Whereas if you're more stable, you're going to maybe have to work on more mobility exercises. And that sounds like people are on this continuum, right? So some people are going to be at one end where other people will be at one end. And I think that's just how most things in life seem to be. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Oh, okay. And so what about our menstrual cycle? Does it have anything to do with our menstrual cycle? And can where we are in our cycle influence our desire, either, you know, increase it or decrease it? I find the menstrual cycle is so fascinating. This is actually what I uh, focused on my master's research on looking at does sexual, not desire, but does sexual arousal change over the course of the menstrual cycle? Because we actually know um, and people are starting to contest this now as more research comes out, but um, our preferences for partners will change over the course of a menstrual cycle. And I won't go into all the evolutionary reasons for this, but there's very cool theories. Look it up, fun Friday night readings. Um, but what we found at least in uh, this study and since I, you know, it's been a while since I was involved in that research, but my understanding is what we see is arousal doesn't really tend to change over the sexual response, or sorry, over the menstrual cycle. Attraction, so kind of the, the thing that's guiding who we're going to have sex with, that might change over the course of a menstrual cycle, but levels of arousal typically don't seem to change very much, mind you. 
if you're feeling super bloated and you've got mm-hmm. cramps and you know you're constantly changing your tampons these might be reasons that desire is going to naturally decrease so there are certainly good reasons for that desire to go down over the course of the menstrual cycle right um, but am i aware of like very clear research that shows consistent patterns across the menstrual cycle i'm not Okay. That makes sense. And I'm very fascinated by this Friday night reading of uh, choice of partners. It's funny. I have a friend who's female and her preference is a female partner, but she says at some point in her, in her cycle, she just wants to, you know, meet up with a guy. So I think that's so fascinating and that is not her typical response. So interesting. There's more to it than I thought. (laughs) Yeah. I could send your friend some papers on perhaps why that's happening. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I want to read them too. (laughs) Yeah. so fascinating. I mean, this world, I think the more we learn about it, the more you realize how much there is to learn about it. The more you know, the more you realize you don't know anything at all. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, Now, something I hear a lot is -hmm. that when women are feeling low sexual desire, it can obviously lead to other feelings. So they may feel shame, like you mentioned earlier, they might be embarrassed or feel inadequate oh gosh, low self-esteem, feel like they're not there for their partner. So many different feelings that this can cause. And I wonder, does that then, you know, intensify the feelings of low sexual desire? Does it create this negative feedback loop? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. For exactly the reasons that you just outlined, right? When we start to sort of you know, buy into this belief, our brain is constantly telling us stuff. And oftentimes that stuff is very cruel. And so if we're not experiencing this constant high sexual desire, like we feel like we should, then we start to feel all of these things. Like you mentioned, shame, guilt, I'm letting my partner down. Maybe my partner is going to leave me if I'm not Mm -hmm. sleeping with them enough. Right. They didn't sign up for a sexless relationship. Um, You know, I'm sexually broken. To some extent, these thoughts are not going to leave you feeling good, right? No. Your mood is absolutely going to go down as a result. Your stress is absolutely going to go up as a result and mood, stress, both killers of a sexual response. And so it absolutely creates a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so what you tend to get is, you know, sometimes um, women will continue even with low desire to engage in sex with their partner, but oftentimes it's for what we would call these avoidant or these demotivating reasons, right? Or like I said, if I don't have sex with my partner, they'll leave, or I feel like I should, I feel guilty. Mm-hmm. And then believe it or not, that doesn't lead to really enjoyable sex. So they're not getting this positive reinforcement to come back and engage in sex, right? It actually yeah. starts to make sex less and less and less enjoyable. And so that cycle absolutely happens, or sometimes we also get this sort of um, a retreat and follow pattern where a female part or woman with low sexual desire could be a man with low sexual desire starts to say, I don't want to, you know, hug my partner right now or kiss my partner right now because they might take that as an invitation to sex and I'm really not in the mood, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to kiss them. I'd like to, but I'm not going to. And then suddenly, oh, I'm not going to hold hands with them because they might take that as me. Oh, I'm not going to sit beside them on the couch. And then suddenly we're going to bed two hours early, not because we're tired, but because we're trying to avoid our partner from any indication that we might be open to sex. And so it creates bigger and bigger and bigger distance. And often partner is like even more now hyper aware of any sign that sex might happen. And so now we have a couple where Sex isn't happening, but it's literally permeating every single interaction that they have. 
And once again, that's going to bring your mood down. That's going to bring your stress up, right? It's going to create relationship conflict. So how could good sex be born out of that? Yeah, right? absolutely. How could sexual desire just kick in in that circumstances? It, there's no way. There's no way. No. no. No, because because like you mentioned earlier, there's no mind body. You're just stressing about the act itself and you're not in the moment or in the present of of how you feel. Well, actually you are, but how you feel is anxious and, and worried. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Everything except for sexy. Yes. Oh, yeah. So then so how, you, go ahead. Well, I, was, I might be following on what you're going to say. So, <laughs> so this is when people come to see us where it feels really hopeless, right? It feels like, how can we break this cycle? And that's exactly what we do. So it's really about kind of first educating information about, well, what we talked about here. This isn't a, you know, a deficit in the sexual response cycle. Mm -hmm. This is how the sexual response cycle works, right? We're just not getting anything along the pathway of the cycle to lead to desire, to lead to an enjoyable sexual experience. And then we also look at what the research shows us helps in terms of low desire. And what we're seeing is a great deal of research. A lot of this is coming out of BC through um, sex researcher, Dr. Lori Brado, who works at UBC. Um, and what we're seeing is that mindfulness is actually really helpful. So I'm going to go back to that brain body connection. Yeah. When we're very aware of what's going on for us in the moment, this allows us to create space for these, you know, the sexual cues to actually hit home, right? For us to make sure that we're making a good context in order for sexual desire to kick in, right? The brain, the mind and the body connection, we see that mindfulness can actually start to bring those two a little bit more in line. Mindfulness, we know can bring our stress levels down a little bit because now we're like disengaging from those very mean things that our brain says of, oh, I must be broken and my partner's going to leave me. Our brain keeps saying it, but we don't get caught in that, right? Yeah. And then we start to recognize, oh, look, there are some physiological signs of arousal happening. Oh, there is some mental percolation happening here. And then that creates the space for desire to then kick in. That makes sense. And that's really cool research. And I think so important because if you're, you know, worried about, you know, wake up time and breakfast and doing all the laundry, like how can you possibly notice those physical signs of your body, but also pay attention to anything other than what you're stressing about. And so if you can quiet that and live more in the moment. Yeah, you got it. You exactly got it. Because in our busy lives, even if we do have a little bit of that desire kick in, oh, I don't have time. I have to get the kids to school. I have deadlines. I got to go. I got to run. I don't even have time for that. Right. Yeah. yeah. So is this research focused on general mindfulness or is it focused on specific, specifically training for, you know, a sexual experience or both? Yeah, that's such, it's such a good question. And so what we see is it is general mindfulness practice. So for example, with uh, some of the work that Lori is doing, they do an eight week uh, group, mindfulness-based group for low sexual desire. And the exercises are not sexy in nature, right? So the first one, we spend about 45 minutes just eating a raisin, right? single raisin. Um, We also do a body scan. We do kind of awareness of our thoughts. Uh, All of these kind of mindfulness exercises, they build up that muscle of mindfulness so that when we go into the bedroom, that muscle is nice and strong and we can flex it. 
right? Mm-hmm. We can use, there are in particular, when we're talking about sex therapy, there is one tool um, that came about actually before the big mindfulness wave in Western medicine. Um, but looking at it now, we're like, oh, that is mindfulness. It was all along. And so this tool is called Sensate Focus. And I describe, it's a partnered exercise. It can be adapted to do alone. And I really describe this as a way to start fresh. And so what this looks like is a couple would come together. I usually recommend they do it for an hour. And so they take about 15 minutes to set the stage. So they're very aware of the context that they're setting, right? They set the dogs out, make sure the kids aren't going to come in, play some music, have a shower, whatever. They set the stage. And then um, for 15 minutes, one partner is very mindfully touching the other. And they're not doing it to give their partner pleasure. They're doing it to be very curious and mindful and aware of the texture, the temperature, the pressure. And they're not touching breasts, buttocks, or genitals. They're skipping Mm -hmm. over those parts. So it's really just connecting and practicing mindfulness with your partner there with their body. Next 15 minutes, you switch roles. So the person Mm -hmm. who's receiving touch is now giving the touch. And then the last 15 minutes, partners talk about it right? Because communication, believe it or not, is really important <laughs> for sex. Uh, we cannot read partners' minds. And so we need to understand what was that like for you? Ooh, the beginning was awkward for me. Ooh, I felt very ticklish when you were touching my toes or whatever. That feedback is given. And now we're practicing communicating in a sexual intimate context. And importantly, this is not foreplay. We do not do, we do, not do the sex after this, right? right? If it's going to happen, do it on a different day because we don't want to have that expectation, right? Otherwise the whole time you're sitting there, you're like, oh God, is when is it? Yeah. Yeah. Am I cured yet? (laughs) And so it's not very mindful. And so this is a, this would be really the most sexy form of mindfulness, but practicing even just a couple moments a day, bringing present moment, non-judgmental awareness to when you're eating your lunch, when you're washing the dishes, when you're mm-hmm. sanitizing your hands 47,000 times a day, right? This yeah. is this is the practice. That's what builds up the skill. That's really, and I love how you said a mindful muscle, right? Or, or whatever term you use. I think it's so important and training that. And one of the meditation apps I follow, I remember him saying, you know, you're never going to be perfect when you're meditating. You might like think about something else or you might not enjoy it. A lot of people think you have to love the five, 10 minutes you meditate, but you might hate it, but it sets you up for the rest of the day or those situations. Yeah. And I thought that yeah. was really curious because it's true. We feel like we should love it. And we feel like- Yeah. Yeah. I will tell you, and this is actually a big kind of barrier that gets in the way with mindfulness practice is that voice in our head that says, Oh, I have to do it perfect. Like you said, mindfulness is not about feeling good. It's about feeling whatever is here right now. And so oftentimes the first couple of times someone practices, they're like, Whoa, I'm so Zen. I'm so calm. That was so nice. Lovely. But the reality is sometimes whatever is really here is excruciating and mindfulness is simply about tuning into that and not getting kind of hooked by all of these different thoughts and pains that come up, emotional or physical, but it's just noticing it with a sense of, they call it equanimity, right? Just, just a sense of curiosity. It's not good. It's not bad. It is what it is, right? And at the same time, we often have this idea, I should be like a zen monk under a tree with zero thoughts in my head. Exactly. That's a dead person goal, right? right? Dead people have zero thoughts. And so as a living person, right, we recognize we're going to have thoughts. We're going to have tons of thoughts. That's not the work. The work is whenever we notice we're having a thought and bring our attention back. 
that's like flexing the muscle. Yeah. I love that distinction. I think it's so important. We're talking about it. Cause I know, I know so many people who don't want to start meditating for exactly that reason. Like I have too much in my head. I can't, I can't do it. I won't be good at it. Or I'll fail at it. Right. Exactly. Like I won't be able to sit there and just be Zen because I just can't. And then they feel like a failure and that's not encouraging them to do more. And no, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So breaking that negative feedback loop, mindfulness works really, really well. Are there any other treatments for this low sexual desire? So cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT can also be a useful tool when it comes to low sexual desire. This would be particularly helpful for people who are really caught by these hooks that say, you know, I'm failing, my partner will leave me, you know, I'm guilty, all of these sorts of things. So we notice these really painful thoughts, what we call cognitive distortions, and we challenge them, right? Okay, do I actually have it? Did my partner say that they're going to leave? Are they actually going to leave? Oh, wait, actually, my partner is quite supportive. Oh, maybe if I talk to them, then I can hear how supportive they are. We challenge those thoughts. So CBT can be very helpful at decreasing the impact that these very painful thoughts can have on us. In terms of physiological or pharmacological interventions, um, there are no treatments that are available. Um, There is one particular treatment, it's called flibanserin or um, also referred to as ADI. And so this is, it's actually a failed antidepressant. um, And what they found with this drug, they were hoping it would be the game changer, the little pink pill to Viagra's little blue pill. Yep. and it was when it when it was coming out, I the the drug itself was sold for a billion dollars because they're like, this is gonna change everything, it's gonna fix women with low desire. And if you look at the research, what you see is that compared to placebo women, so women who were taking placebo uh, medication, there was an increase of one half sexual, enjoyable sexual encounter per month. Okay. And there are side effects to the drugs, such as dizziness, headaches, uh, nausea, and women are not allowed to drink alcohol for the time that they're taking this drug. So this is a daily wow. medication you take every day. You cannot drink alcohol while this is happening. There are some side effects, mild to moderate, but side effects nonetheless. And this is for the impact of a half enjoyable sexual encounter per month. Um, and so is this a little pink pill pharmacological revolution to cure all of women's sexual desire problems? No, no. it is not. No, no, not at all. Wow. Are, is that something, I mean, you're not, you might not know the answer to this, but are the, you know, pharmacological companies, is this something they're still working on or trying to develop or are they realizing that it's not a physical thing as much as all of these other factors? It's a good question. And I just, I don't know what's happened to the state of these drugs since the whole flibanserin fiasco That's fair. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. So we know no real pills, but mindfulness and then CBT and obviously sex therapy, which is in part, both of those things. Um, Any other major treatments or are those kind of the, the main things? I would say that those are the big things. Like if there is something kind of underlying what's going on, the low going on underneath the low desire. So for example, very common that we see women with low desire also have genital pain, right? And this is where pelvic floor physio would absolutely come in. Addressing the pain, addressing what's going on there is going to be helpful, right? Um, Same thing, life stage. If there's new kids recognizing Mm -hmm. that, and sometimes it'll just kind of get better on its own. Um, so, you know, we generally 
you know, general health hygiene, if you will, sleep well, eat well, exercise, take care of your mental health. Um, those things are all critical to the, the, the process of helping sexual desire. Um, but yeah, I would say, unfortunately, it's not that there's a quick fix per se, mm -hmm. and yet you would be amazed at once we have that understanding and we start implementing these skills, like the mindfulness skills we see from these studies, people are showing marked difference after eight weeks of mindfulness practice. And those differences are sustained for six months, a year after they're done. So hopefully they're continuing these general yeah. healthy living strategies. Um, but it, it absolutely does work. That's amazing. And, and something I really hope more people start to look into and, and try because obviously they would have the best success working with someone like you who can kind of teach them, but even there's so many meditation apps that they could download and just start, right. If yeah. they don't have the resources to come see you or, or Absolutely. don't aren't ready yet to maybe discuss it, even just yeah. starting with a five minute a day meditation or mindfulness. Absolutely. Practice. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'll, I'll plug uh, Lori Brado's book actually Absolutely. So she has a book that's called Called Better Sex Through Mindfulness, available anywhere you buy your books. Very nice, easy read, audiobook version too. Um, and it does a really good job of just laying out all of the research that she's done, particularly on women with the low sexual desire and what the research shows works. So mm -hmm. that is an excellent place for people to start if they're looking for help. That's amazing. Um, now, can you tell us a little bit more about what sex therapy would look like? So if a woman, woman came to you or, or a couple came to you saying that they were experiencing low sexual desire, what kind of process would you take them through? Yeah. So um, first of all, I will say the first session is always absolutely terrifying. And then once people have gotten through the first session, that's the hardest part. So recognizing that. Um, Typically what we do is we just start off with a nice solid assessment. We take an hour and a half for our assessments. We get a really good sense of essentially, you know, I've referenced the sexual response cycle a couple times, kind of that checklist of what helps and what hurts a sexual response. So we'll go through that either with the individual or the couple. Often we do encourage partners to come along. We mm -hmm. tend to make progress a little bit faster with the recognition that it's not couples therapy, right? Doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the relationship, but sex therapy, not always, but often takes more than one person, right? Mm -hmm. So having all the people involved can be really helpful. So once we have a really good sense of what's going on and where we want to go in therapy, right? Because I can have my own ideas, but or the client is the expert on them. So they're the ones who are setting the goals and setting the pace. And then we really kind of dive into, it tends to be very skills-based. And so okay. we start out really creating this roadmap of what helps and what hurts a sexual response. When we have that, that's our foundation that we're building up on. So we can start to target in, okay, where are these kind of problem areas? Oh, you haven't slept for seven weeks. Like, okay, maybe this is where we start out with, right? Oh, there's yeah. a lot of relationship conflict. Oh, you're very stressed. So we focus in on there um, using all of these sort of different skills. There's sort of a variety. When we talk about sex therapy, you know, it is, we're building it on the mindfulness, on the CBT. And then we'll just add in a lot of kind of education, what we know helps and hurts when it comes to sex. And not just sex, but fun, light, enjoyable sex, mm -hmm. right? And so there is a big educational component too, because we, again, we don't get taught this with the media, you know, what we're, what we're led to believe about sex. There's so many myths out there. And so many of the couples that we're seeing, you know, you can ask the question, 
if you can offer up your sex that you're currently having to someone else and say, hey, this is the sex you could have for the rest of your life, would that other person take it? Unfortunately, often not, right? Mm-hmm. Often yeah. we need to be very effortful in creating that, bring that fun and bring that novelty into sex. And when we have this idea, sex should just be natural. I shouldn't mm-hmm. have to talk about it. It should be easy. You know, psychologist's favorite joke is you're shooting on yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I've and not so heard can, that before. <laughs> oh, this is, this is my favorite, right? So don't should all over yourself. And can we take those, that pile of shoulds and put them aside and really focus in on what helps for you and your relationship. So Mm -hmm. it looks different depending on the person because it's going to change depending on what their goals are and what's going on in their lives, but tends to really focus in on creating a roadmap, seeing what helps, what hurts, bringing in mindfulness, bringing in CBT if needed, and Mm -hmm. bringing in kind of all folding in these other educational components in order to make sex funner. That's awesome. I love it. And I love the roadmap that you mentioned, because a lot of people do so much better just knowing I have a plan and, yeah. and this is what it might look like in the future, but maybe not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, we can't really... go anywhere if we don't know like what it is that's impacting us. Knowledge so is power. Knowledge is power. <laughs> okay. So you mentioned Lori Brado's book. Mm-hmm. If someone maybe can't come to see you or a psychologist or, or seek help or isn't ready yet, are there any other really great resources you can offer? There are. So um, I'm really kind of promoting Lori's stuff because she has done such a fantastic job in this field. But part of what they're doing with their research is a lot of tra- knowledge translation. So they have a campaign that's going on. It's called Debunking Desire. And you can go to the website, which is, I believe, debunkingdesire.ca or Google hashtag debunkingdesire. (laughs) They have a little educational movie uh, about a minute and a half, two minutes long that just summarizes what's going on with low desire and what the research shows to make things better. They have a uh, toolkit that you can download, very easy to read, just a couple pages that, again, summarizes the important bits you need to know. And so that is such a fantastic starting point. Um, Highly recommend that. On our website, on the TriHealth Clinic website, so trihealthclinic.com, there is a version of the sexual response cycle handout that I Mm -hmm. use all of the time. So you can just download that from our resource page too. And otherwise, like you said, there's so many mindfulness apps out there. I, I can be a little nitpicky because some folks do, you know, talk about things as being mindfulness when in fact it's actually not, it's, it's trying to make things different or it's positive thinking right. or positive affirmations, which is not mindfulness. Do you have a favorite um, mindfulness app? I do. It Well, there are many good ones out there, but again, I like what the science shows. And so mm-hmm. there was a meta-analysis that looked at all different mindfulness apps with research And what they found is that the one app with the most research and the best research findings was Headspace. Okay. And so Headspace is lovely. Unfortunately, it is paid. There is a subscription, but it's a yearly fee. Not ideal, but they have a um, Netflix show now. So if you have Netflix, I believe it's 10 episodes. The episodes are pretty short. They're like 15 minutes or less. And they have them information in the beginning to teach you about mindfulness and they have an actual meditation in the latter half of it amazing that is a phenomenal place to start and if you find one that works you just keep doing it I love it yeah 
Okay. That's good to know. I've heard lots of good, I don't actually use Headspace myself. So now I'm curious where the one I use is on the list, but, (laughs) but uh, that's really good to know. I'll check out the Netflix special too. Oh, I love it. And the um, Andy from Headspace has such a delightful New Zealand accent. I could just listen to him all day. There is nothing wrong with that. (laughs) Nope, not at all. (laughs) All right, Jen, I have one last question for you. But before I ask you, I first want you to tell people, where can they find you? Are you on social media? Can I know you said your website. Where can people find more information about what you do? Yes. So I think website is probably the best place. So again, it's Tri Health Clinic. It's T-R-I Health Clinic. Dot com. Uh, I am on Twitter. Haven't been super active lately, but every so often. Busy. There is <laughs> yep. You know, living that COVID life. Um, so <laughs> my Twitter is uh, at Jen Bossio. Uh, so that is just my name. Um, I would say that those are the best places to find me. And are you accepting new clients? I know a lot of people in your field are not. Um, so are you, or is there a much of a wait list right now? We are accepting, and there is a wait list, unfortunately, at this time. There's just such a mental health crisis. However, we are aiming to go through it like as, as fast as possible. Um, so we have been getting people through in a pretty short-ish amount of time. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. And people it's just have to be from Ontario if they want to see you. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So okay. As long as they're physically located in Ontario, anywhere in Ontario is good. Amazing. I mean, it's the one, but be- not the one benefit, but it is a benefit that it's opened up who we can help, right? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. So my last question for you then is if you had someone in front of you who was experiencing low sexual desire, what are the top three pieces of advice or pieces of homework you might suggest to kind of get them on their journey to understanding what's going on and, and feeling better? Yeah, I think the first thing that is just so powerful is the recognition that you are not alone, right? You are not sexually broken. There is nothing wrong with your body. This is actually more a function of the life that we are, we all live in, right? And so just validating that and recognizing, you know, one in three women are dealing with this over some course over their lifespan. So I think that is probably the most important place to start with that. From there, I would really talk about this roadmap of what helps and hurts a sexual response, what hits the gas, hits the brake pedal. So that is looking at the sexual response cycle, because I know, you know, for me, once I have an understanding of what Mm -hmm. impacts what's going on, suddenly it's not, oh, I'm broken. It's, oh, it makes perfect sense that this is what's happening, given this roadmap that we've drawn out. Mm -hmm. And then I would say, let's get you started on some mindfulness right? Because the happy benefit of mindfulness is as excruciating as it could be talking from (laughs) personal experience, you know, the benefits are lower stress, it's better mood, we see relationship satisfaction is much better, better when we're practicing mindfulness, we see that immune system functioning is better when we're practicing mindfulness, right? So I think that that is, it's such a huge bang for your buck. And we see that it doesn't take a lot of time. Yes, it's effortful. And it's hard to start a Mm -hmm. new thing yet another thing we have so many things but we can do mindfulness informally when we're doing a different daily activity right and so it is relatively low impact with very high excellent research to show very proven benefits especially with sex I love it and and like you said it can help with sex but it can help in so many other aspects of life as well 
Yeah. yeah so, really you know, best bang for your buck for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, amazing. Well, thank you so, so much for coming on today. I so appreciated it. And I, I learned a lot and I think our listeners will too. My absolute pleasure. This was great. Oh, and I'm sure we'll hopefully connect again and maybe talk about something else like our Friday well, night reading. No <laughs> yeah, perfect. <laughs> Thanks so much, Jen. Awesome. Thanks, Kathy.